Hello. Hello. And you can hear me, right? Hey, Dan, I can hear you just fine. You know, John, I've used a piece of software I love called Audio Hijack. I've been using that to record for years and years, and it's been wonderful. And today, without anything having changed, and that's the the frustrating part, Mm -hmm. nothing has changed. Right. Literally, I I recorded something yesterday afternoon at about five or six o'clock. I hit stop. I left the room. I have now come back to the room. Oh, that was your problem. Never leave the Never room. Never leave then. the room. I hit I hit start again and the application just it freezes. It hangs. It doesn't do anything. So wow. so that's frustrating, right? Of course. That is frustrating. Yeah. And um and it, no matter what, there is nothing I, I deleted it, I reinstalled it, I rebooted, I deleted all the preference, I did all of this stuff frantically, because I know you're sitting there like waiting. Yeah. And nothing did not, nothing, nothing worked. So, you know, I'm back to my old pal logic pro X or 10, as you're supposed to say it. And uh-huh. I had to, then I had to get that set up and configured and working. So I hope, I hope this show records at this point. <gasps> I don't know what's happening. I see two waveforms, one for you, one for me, fingers crossed, but I have, have you ever seen it? The app just wouldn't, it just wouldn't go, wouldn't play, wouldn't play oh, nice. Dan, so, you're singing my song here, mm, you know. I yeah, this does, like, this kind of thing does happen to you, doesn't it? It happens to me, but I didn't, I don't even know how, I, I wouldn't even know, begin to know how to delete all the preferences, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, as a, as a method of troubleshooting. You know, I just, right. um, I just uh, punch out mm-hmm. when, when the going gets tough. Mm-hmm. doesn't take much. So I'm impressed that you, um, you know, I'm very impressed that you, you well, went the show, all the as, distance. As you've taught me, John, the show must go on. The show must go on. The show must go on at any, at any cost. And the show is going on and here it is. There it is. Well, Dan, I'm so sorry. And you know, I, I have a tendency to think that, uh, people like you who are computer savvy mm. and have, have been in computers <laughs> that we have for some a long kind of, time. we, nothing hap- ever happens to us, right? Well, yeah, I mean, you know where all the pull-down menus are, and you go, oh, bleep, bloop, bleep, bloop, and, right, sure. and uh, everything. And it's just that computers are against people like me, mm-hmm. dummies, uh, and they're set up to make us buy new Apple products because we feel like, oh, it's too old. It doesn't work anymore. Right. Even sure. though guys like you and John Syracuse buy a new computer every six weeks just because because you got I keep used up to do Joneses. that guilty as charged I don't anymore but I, I used to buy a new one you know like I instead of like well what should we do well the old one's charging so let's just get a new one yeah yeah you know my laptop is from the one that I'm recording on right now the one that I'm talking to you on mm-hmm. because it can be said that we are talking to one another on our computers and not uh, not via our computers. But let's see. Merlin hates it when I do this because he's afraid that I'm going to uh, give away something, give away something, and people are going to know something about me. But it says here that I have a mid-2014 MacBook Pro. Okay. And uh, at one point, it, it stopped working. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I called Apple. And I said, I feel it's illegitimate that this stopped working. And I didn't have Apple Care, and I didn't, I didn't do any of the things right. I don't even think I registered it. And yet they were very, they were careful, but they were amenable, mm-hmm. and they were they replaced some major part of it, and that's still working, still going strong. <sighs> still, I'm mad. I'm mad at them. 
for, I guess, for making it impossible to live without these things. It really is impossible now. It is. And, uh, and that I feel like is, is sad. It's, I don't want to, I don't want to have to live with them. I don't want this to be inevitable. I mean, I, I think that when the washing machine came along, it became much more likely that you would have one, but it didn't, I guess that's still the same, isn't it? You don't have to have one of these things any more than you have to have a washing machine, but I do have a washing machine and I do have one of these. And my washing machine is newer than my computer. So what does that tell you? Uh, Did your computer I, just stop working? Oh no, you're still here. No, I'm here. I'm, uh, I think that the, um, the idea that you need to replace a washing machine, there are people who have a lot of resentment about that because in, in our time from certainly our parents, but even in, in our generation, I feel like the anticipation and the expectation is that the washing machine, the dryer and the refrigerator are meant to last a decade or beyond. And in yeah. fact, I, I know people, baby boomers who still have a washing machine or a refrigerator that is many decades old, despite the fact that it looks horrible, it still works. And they're like, well, it works. Why would I replace it? It works. Right. And the, you know, we certainly were trained by Apple and other companies to think that our phones are not permanent things, that they're disposable things. They're not. Why would you want to keep a phone for two years? Like, that's weird. Like, we don't want you to do that. Here's the look like these better features and new things and emojis and stuff. You've got to get the new phone for. Yeah. But you know, emojis. we don't think of them as tools. Like I used to have my grandfather's hammer until it finally broke. And it was his probably when he was in his, you know, thirties and it was, well, what hammer. did you was do? Fine. What did you do with it when it broke? Pitched it out. Oh, right in the trash. It, it was repairable. Your grandfather's now, hammer. The, the the way that the handle, it was a wooden handle, and in the way that it went into the uh, the head of the hammer, it was just antiquated. It had it had lived three lifetimes. I felt like it needed to rest. Uh huh. In in the garbage, it needed yeah, to rest. That's where it went. Take a garbage rest. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. I mean, like something like that, you think, you know, why would, and I, I've told this story before, but I don't think I've told it on our show. Um, when I was first starting out doing like consulting work, I was trying to pick up any kind of job that I could get. And this one guy hired me. He was like, he did like networking and other stuff, but he didn't know anything about Max. And he had just got a new customer, new client that was like a print shop. And they said uh, that they wanted him to come in and give them the internet, bring the internet to them and to their office and things like that. And they had all these Macs and he's like, I don't know. I don't know what to do with a Mac. I don't know how to set it up. And I had kind of imagined I would go in and find relatively modern Macs in there, but they did have some modern ones, but they had a handful of really old Macs really? and they were using them to control their, um, they had these re I don't know what they're called. I'm sure there's a, a special fancy name for them. But they had these really, really big, large printers that would print on sheets of paper that were like five feet wide. There was like specialty stuff. And the Macs that they had connected to these special printers were very ancient. They were super, super old. Like you couldn't, if something ever broke, that would be it for it. But the reason that they had them was because for, from their standpoint, they were just tools. They were tools ah, that tools. performed a function. 
and they worked. Uh-huh. Why would you uh-huh. replace that? Why would you get something new? Why would you spend money on it or configure it or waste any, even a single moment doing anything with this other than the fact that, well, hey, it, it works. It does its job. And that taught me something because even back then I was very much like the next bigger, better, faster, newer thing is always the best. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes the thing that works perfectly is the best. Mm, and the idea the of re- that works perfectly, you know, replacing something for the sake of replacing it, you know, and that, that's why all these people think that there's this conspiracy theory at Apple or wherever at these other companies that, you know, they make it so that after a certain amount of time, your phone's battery just coincidentally starts to die right around the time that the new one comes out. Whoop whoop. But I don't, I don't buy any of that. I mean, I, I'll do conspiracy theories. That's just not one of them. Yeah, I, you know, I was going through some boxes of books the other day. By the other day, I mean yesterday. Mm-hmm. And um, I've got a lot of books. Although I once had a, I once had a girl visit me from Spain, and she walked around my house at one point. You know, my house was just bookshelves everywhere. And she walked on and she said, "John, where are all your books?" And I said, what do you mean? And she was like, your books, where are your books? And she expected that I would have five times more books than I had. Just because you're so a learned man? I guess. And I had books everywhere. Books, 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 books. But I realized that I'd given away a lot of books. You know, a lot of books. You read it. You read it on a train. You write your name in it and the date that you left it. And then you leave it on the seat in the train. You put the book on a shelf. You leave a book on a, in a cafe. When you finish a book and you can't, and you're not going to pack your book around with you, your done book, you're going to carry it around with you. Right. You leave it somewhere. You put your name in it. But that doesn't account for all the missing books that this Spanish girl thought that I should, that I should have. That I, I think that when I think about the houses I've been in of people that have books really have books like a library like more a books. home library yeah more books than they could possibly have read but the books are the books are symbolic the books mean something and i moved into this house and i you know i put my stuff around but in the basement there's just like boxes and boxes and boxes of books so i you know and i've been kind of dreading it because it's like ah, i know that some of those books are are books i don't know what to do with so i open the boxes and it's like, here's a bunch of books from a period where I was doing Native American studies in the early 90s as part of my colonialism project. Okay, sure. And I read a dozen books and then a dozen more books about books about the Pacific Northwest Native American encounter with the Europeans. Mm -hmm. So they're here. They are, they're all in a bookshelf or they're all in a box. And I'm thinking about the house and I'm thinking about now, what exactly does, what do I do with this box of books? Do I find a shelf and put them somewhere in case I ever want to refer back to the encounter at Nootka sound uh, or do I put these 
books in a box and take them to a bookstore or a thrift store. And I, and I opened another box and it was another kind of set of books where it's like, what, how often am I going to refer to civilization and its discontents mm-hmm. now that I would want to pick the, the paper book, paperback off the, off the shelf rather than just look at it on my phone. Sure. And then I think about the EMP, the giant EMP that's yes, coming. And by that, I mean electromagnetic pulse. Sure. That's going to erase all of the, all of the Freud and Kafka off of the internet. And there won't be an internet anymore. And we'll all be driving around in, in on one cylinder scooters that we're going to power with cooking oil. And at that point, as we're reconstructing a civilization and we're rebuilding it from the ashes, and most people are looking around in the, the little caves and hovels that they construct for themselves, and all they'll find is like the charred remnants of cookbooks because that's all – those are the only books left in people's houses, and even those are going. And they'll try to reconstruct a civilization from cookbooks, Dan. And, you know, that one – that civilization is going to be even worse than the one we're living in now. Sure. Or I don't know. I don't know. Maybe better. Maybe if you built a civilization entirely on like the remnants of one pot cookbooks and Rachel Ray, maybe Rachel Ray's philosophy of life is better than Thomas Jefferson's. But do I want to be one of those people that's just standing and it's like, Oh, I, my mom printed out some recipes for, you know, Chili Verde, and that's all that's in this drawer, and I gave away all my books about colonialism. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, honestly, anymore. I don't know. I think I, I would retain some knowledge, but it's nice to be able to refer to a book. If, if I'm standing up in front of a, an unruly mob, and I'm making a case that, that I should be their leader, <laughs> and I, I think they'll know, I think they'll in, instinctively know that I should be their leader, but let's say I'm standing up there and I'm saying, listen, Rachel Ray is not a God. She is not our guide. And they're going to say, says who? And I'm like, well, I read some books once that I gave away a long time ago. Mm-hmm. That's not going to help my case. No, I'm going to need to be able to, to, you know, to present the metamorphoses and wave it in front of them and say, you haven't read this book and I have, and it's not, your phones are all dead now. (sighs) So I don't know what to do. I've got all these boxes. Basically what the boxes are necessitating is shelves and you know, there aren't enough shelves in the world. And what am I trying to do? Am I trying to impress this Spanish girl that hasn't been to my house in 15 years? Say like, no, 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 look, I've got all the books. Look, I don't even have all the books. I just have the books that I have, but here they are. And she can kind of run her finger down the spine of all these books and go, I know, but where are your other books? Mm. Where are the real books, the books? And I think, I don't know whether she means, you know, in Spain, they do things differently in, in Barcelona, especially she might have meant, where are the books that I inherited from my father? Where are my mother's books that should, that should be lining the, you know, you don't even need art or wallpaper in the apartment she's imagining. Also, she lives in a six bedroom apartment in Barcelona that she inherited. 
So of course all the walls are lined with books and they're all, you know, there's Cervantes from head to toe. And I'm like, I don't, I don't have my, you know, my mom threw away everything at the day she consumed it. She, she's like you, Dan, she, she read a book and unless it was the French Lieutenant's woman, she put the book into a, into a, well, I don't even know where she put her books. They went away. Her books went away. It's gone. And, and my dad's books, my dad had, my dad had shelves and shelves and shelves of books, but they were all garbage. They weren't even books that you would use to start a fire. Hmm. My dad's that bad. I mean, my dad, the best books on my dad's shelf were, um, like not Spencer for hire, but they were all, <laughs> they were all those books that were <laughs> like, what if, you know, like, uh, a Nazi V one rocket, uh, launching plant was discovered on the coast of France and it, no one had known about it for 50 years, but these, these, uh, unreconstructed Nazis from Argentina have come back and they're going to start a new world war. You know, all these things that were written in 1979 about when, when all the, when all the world war two vets were 55, it was a whole genre of pulp novel. Like what if the Germans really are still, what if, what if the Nazis are still underground and about to start a new war? Uh, you know, Mishner and Forsyth. And I don't know. Those were the, those are even the, the novels that were good. No, he just read trash. He read trash and he, and he did keep his books, but it was like, it was like the middle-aged man equivalent of, of, uh, of the twilight novels, <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay, sure. But it's not, it's not like sexy vampires. It's, um, the, the heroes of those books were always like middle-aged guys who were a little broken down and kind of drunk who drove a beat up car, right. you know, like basically like Rockford files, but somehow they get in there and with the help of their, uh, you know, their black friend who used to work for the police department, they solve mysteries and, um, and they get the girl. I don't, I don't, I, maybe those books still get written. I don't have any of those. I didn't keep any of my dad's books. What do I have? I got a bunch of just, uh, just like any of us, just the random books that were in my hands at a time when I had a shelf to put them on. And that amounts to books and they still have value to me. That's what it is. They still have some they still have some meaning, even though someone like you, Dan, would say, you're never going to read these books again. You're literally never going to open these books again. And so what is their value? Their value is just to weigh down your house so it doesn't blow away in a, in a strong wind. It, it keeps you tied to the earth, the, just the weight of your books. I'm very conflicted about it. And partly it is that I don't want to go, I don't want to go through these boxes and pull well, out all these big, books. That's a big part of it. Yeah. Cause every one of these books has an, uh, has a whole association of memory mm-hmm. where I have to look at them and think about their time and think about my time with them. And 
I don't, maybe that's not where I am right now in, in, in life. Mm -hmm. I, I suffer from, I suffer, suffer from like morbid sentimentality sometimes. Yeah. Not all the time. Not all the time. And, and I don't know, I don't always know the, uh, the antidote to morbid sentimentality and books are the opposite of the antidote. I was at the Fred, I was at the Fred Meyer yesterday. I was getting, what is the Fred? What is the Fred Meyer? Oh, it's like a, it's like a regional Walmart, except higher quality and without all of the stigma attached to Walmart. (laughs) All right. Good. Fred Meyer is, you know, we call it Freddy's and there's no sense that Fred Meyer is, is it close? Is so? Is it? I mean, it's a. It is a. It is not a grocery store. It's a have has it all kind of store. Yeah, they sell groceries. They sell home stuff. They sell hardware. They sell clothes. Um, they sell everything. If you go into a Fred Meyer, it's sort of all there, and it's not. They're not bad. They're good. They're. Sure. They've never supported any, as far as I can tell, any bad. Actually, you know, they're they've been purchased by Kroger, I think. So okay. in the in effect, they're just they're just part of the global. Some weird bug just flew into the tree that I'm I'm looking at. It's a very big bug. Anyway, I was at the Fred Meyer and I was looking for shower curtain rings, and I'm uh, you know I'm wandering around the store looking at shower curtain rings. I think, do I need a waste basket? Sure. Do I, do I need a floor? Do I need a, like a, like a floor mat for out front? And, uh, they're playing a selection of modern, uh, pop music yeah. over the stereo. And it's kind of cranked, you know, for a grocery store. It's huh. like, <laughs> it's like kind of happening. Yeah. And, um, and it's very like, it's the slick, uh, like highly produced pop music that defines our time. And, about halfway through my visit there, right after I found the shower curtain rings that I was going to buy, um, a song comes on and I know it, and I and I I fairly quickly discern that it is "Wrecking Ball" by Miley Cyrus. Oh yeah, That's not a bad song. Yeah, and I remember the first time I heard "Wrecking Ball" by Miley Cyrus, I. I was impressed. You know, the verse just kind of comes out and it's just sort of puttering along like it's not really distinguishing itself. But then the chorus comes in and it's got a neat little, it's got a neat little turn, you know, melodically. It kind of does a, it does a cool little thing. And so I, I, you know, it gave me pause. Like I, I stopped and listened to it. And as it went on, I I was moved by it. Mm. And you know, I I went to see Miley Cyrus several John, years ago. Music does sometimes have the power to create an emotional feeling. Well, this is exactly it, Dan. You've just you've just hit it. I uh, I responded to the Miley Cyrus concert I attended because I was impressed by her professionalism and by her command of the room and Mm -hmm. by the by the elaborateness of the show and like she um 
I had kind of thought of her as, you know, a manufactured pop star, but she was clearly like very much in control of the, of the event. And I thought she was pretty marvelous, but I don't think, I mean, and I was moved at her show a couple of times, but moved by the psychedelic nature of it kind of almost moved to terror borderline <laughs> terror oh really <laughs> but i had never heard you know and she played wrecking ball at the show and i was like that's a song that i've heard <laughs> um but you know like i saw adele and i was moved by her by her music mm-hmm. and not to say musicianship because miley cyrus had tremendous musicianship right but i'm listening to this song wrecking ball at the Fred Meyer and um, and she gets to the end of the chorus and she says, you know, all I wanted was to break your walls. All you ever did was wreck me. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm there and, and, you know, and I'm kind of like uh, that thing that happens sometimes, sometimes where you're just kind of struck by a bolt and you're like frozen in the holding your shower curtain rings in one hand, just kind of like rooted in place and, and kind of devastated. And I, you know, and I'm thinking at the time, like this is an example of a thing where who knows what Miley Cyrus's experiences were that led her to write wrecking ball and let's make sure i'm just going to look up real quick here i didn't i didn't look it up before but um let's just make sure that it was who it was written by um make sure it was written oh so written by sasha scarbeck okay um how how common is that in uh in the music world where the artist is not the one who wrote the song. Is that very common? Is it half the time? What do you, what do you find? I think that it is a, you know, it's a, it's a cult culture thing. Like in my, in my universe, um, everybody writes their own songs, both as a matter of pride and also because they don't have access to, I mean, they're very few, um, very few situations where somebody would write a song that would be better than a song I could write that I could afford to. And does it, do they get a percentage of the royalties or are you like writing them out a check when they, uh, when they do it? Well here, so this song was written by Mozella, okay. which is um, uh, the, a song. Uh, she's a songwriter. Uh, whose real name is Maureen Ann McDonald, mm. but she's Mozella. And then Stephen Mochio and also Sasha Scarbeck and Dr. Luke. Oh, well, Dr. Luke. Yeah. And, uh, oh wait. And circuit, uh, circuit or circuit, uh, which is the pen name of Henry Russell Walter. Hmm. So Henry Russell Walter, a.k.a. Circuit, and Maureen Ann McDonald, a.k.a. Mozilla, those are – it's interesting that they're – that the people with the most um, 
dorky names have these cool pen names. Maybe that's how it goes. Yeah, I was going to say that. If, if you're born with a cool name, you don't use a pen name. So all those writers get uh, get money in the sense that or, – or they get money from the writing side. Every song has two sides. It has the performance side and the writing side, and they sp- – are split equally and the writing side gets the writing money for the song regardless of who performs it. So you'll get a thing like where um, Dolly Parton wrote I Will Always Love You and then it comes along that Whitney Houston sings it and makes it... Is there someone else that sang it even before Whitney Houston? Not Dolly Parton? Uh, That's a good question. I feel like there was I will always, will always love you. Um, let's see. I will always love you was originally recorded by Dolly Parton in 1973. Wow. Yep. Uh, and then, oh, it was written as a farewell to Porter Wagner. Of course. Which you can really hear in the Whitney Houston version. <laughs> yep. Uh, it w- it was number one on the Hot Country Songs in '74. Um, and is Dolly Parton someone that is known for writing her own uh, her own stuff? Always, yeah. Is she I mean, a songwriter I, as much as she's a singer. No, I think that people in that world, in her world, covered each other's songs, and and you know that back in those days. Somebody would come out with a song, and then someone else would cover it two months later. Sometimes the cover would come out before the songwriter's version or there'd be four versions of it on the charts all at once. You know, like the first time that I became aware of this, that this happened, uh, there were, there were two different artists that almost hit at the same time doing, and they're both connected to Prince. And I doubt you're going to guess what the second one is, but the first one, I know, you know what it is, which is shocking to me when I found out that, um, Sinead O'Connor, Nothing Compares to You is written by Prince. Yeah. And I mean, there's if you've ever heard Prince's version, it's pretty cool, but it doesn't sound anything like uh, Sinead O'Connor's version of it. But when right. I learned about this, I mean, I was in high school probably at the time. And I remember just being like really surprised. Like I had no idea that that thing went on. Of course, I was just, my assumption had always been that if you're singing the song, it was like your song and you wrote it. And like, sometimes you would find out like in a, within the con, like this is so obvious to you, but to me it was not that like, sometimes the singer of the band isn't even the one who writes the song. Sometimes like it's the drummer and you're like, what the drummer, they wrote a song, Phil Collins. And so, you know, so you're like, wow. Okay. But like the person who sings it didn't, doesn't always write it, but they sing it with such feeling. They seem to own it when they're up there. They own the song. They own the delivery of the song. The song clearly comes from their soul. And then I I realized that that maybe is just part of, part of singing. The second song is a Tom Jones song. He redid kiss the song by Prince. Yes. Yep. And his version of it is, equally alien as Sinead O'Connor's is to the Prince version. But like that opened my eyes to this whole thing that's, that goes on that I was completely unaware of. 
Yeah, well, it's a wonderful, um, you know, I covered Solitary Man by Neil Diamond for many years, but <laughs> I covered it because of the version that Johnny Cash did. Oh. And his cover of it moved me in a way that Neil Diamond's version, which, you know, of course I was familiar with, uh, but it Neil Diamond's version had none of the gravity that um, that Johnny Cash's version did, and I think for obvious reasons, right? I mean, Johnny Cash was bringing something to his performance that Neil Diamond in 1969 had zero access to. Right. Um, and so, you know, there are some songs that no one should ever cover because they already are definitive, you know, like Creep by Radiohead yeah. is, is perfectly of its time and of its people. Um, you're not gonna, <laughs> if, if Johnny Cash covered Creep, mm -hmm. it would be really lame. <laughs> um, you know, it, there's no other way to no no one else can say like I'm a creep mm -hmm. <laughs> because just by doing it it would be creepy right uh, but there are other songs that are they're so improved by the experience of the you know the the experience that the singer brings to it you know the the song that I wrote. Uh, with Amy Mann is an example of a song where you wouldn't say that she was doing a cover of it because I never recorded it, but, but it's, um, it's a song that I could have recorded. I wrote except for her, her massively good bridge. Um, and she, you know, she changed the lyrics to suit her in, in many instances, but if you listen to uh if you listen to the song it sounds like a John Roderick song except it doesn't because it's being performed by Amy Mann mm -hmm. and so it sounds like an Amy Mann song and it is an Amy Mann song you know it's a it's a it's a co-written composition sure Whereas the Miley Cyrus song is an example of uh, like a team, a team of songwriters who are writing tunes and pitching them to all the contemporary songwriters. And the, that, that list of songwriters, you know, the, the reason there are five or six people on that, on that uh, masthead are that somebody wrote the song, somebody else made a minor adjustment, and then five other people glommed on and were like, well, what if it went, you know, I mean, you can't have five people co-write a song, really. You can have two people write a song, and then three other people come in in the, in the production of it and make contributions or changes that are significant enough or they are strong enough, they have enough power in the music industry that they can insert themselves in as a songwriter. Right. I mean, do, do then, you necessarily get royalties if you're oh, credited sure. that way? Is that how that works? Is that is yes. that the main reason that you want to be listed as a co-writer or is it more do you want the credit for having made something awesome? Uh, no, they want the 
they want the royalties right because you know those rich people are rich because every time they open their mail they've got 10% royalties on on uh, 15 number one songs sure. the money the money must just pour in it's got to be right. phenomenal to be dr dog or whatever right um you know how exciting how exciting to to go to the mail every every monday i hate the mail and the thing is, all you have to do is get a fraction of a fraction. All, all, all that has to happen, you don't have to get 10% of the song. No, you only have to get 2% of the song if the song is a massive hit. Sure. 2% of 10 massive hits. But that song, and, and realizing that it wasn't written by Miley, um, kind of you know, gives me sort of a somewhat different interpretation of my experience because I was responding to something in the music, definitely something in her performance and the production of the song, but something in the song, something in the writing of the song. And, you know, it, it, it affected me enough that I went out to the car and found the song on YouTube and listened to it again. And, you know, and kind of made the mistake at first of thinking that I was going to watch the music video, but the music video did not improve my experience of the song no. because the music video is of Miley Cyrus naked on a swinging around on a wrecking ball. It's not bad. No, no, no. It, but it's very different from, it's very different from the emotion of the, sure. of the music, right. you know? Um, it's a, it's a music video that somebody dreamed up and it seemed like, yeah, that's going to get kind of contrived. Well, just not, not related. Right. But the last thing I expected when I left the house yesterday was that, that, uh, that this pop song, Miley Cyrus's wrecking ball was going to, that it was going to appear to me at a grocery store and that it was going to change the trajectory of my day. Mm -hmm. And I was already in a, in a fairly bad mood yesterday because I've started taking this ADD medicine. Yeah. The new ADD medicine. Now are you, I forgot to ask you this the last time we talked, are you still taking the Lamictal or Lamictal? Or yes. did that, is that done with, because you're on the new thing? No, the Lamictal, I still think of as, uh, as a miracle drug yeah. for me. And, you know, I can't imagine, um, I can't imagine a, a drug that I, uh, that I would be l less willing to give up, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not one of these situations where it's like a, it's like a speedy drug or a, or a downer drug that, you know, that I'm addicted to it's, but it is a drug that I'm now dependent upon, mm -hmm. uh, in, in that I don't want, I don't want to test what it's like to not, to, 
Yeah. Yeah. To go back and like, well, let's see if I get super depressed or let's see if I go off the rails. Why and would then, you want to do that? Yeah. Like it just doesn't seem like a good use of, if I'm going to take some, some cool risks and go do some rad things, that doesn't seem like the direction that yeah. I want my cool risks to go. Right. Um, so, no, I started taking this stuff, and I noticed that I felt irritable. Mm. And irritable is a weird word. What does that mean, irritable? I mean, I'm always a little irritable. But I kind of walked around, and I was a little bit pinched mm. for a few days. Enough that I said to the people in my life, I was like, hey, will you, will you watch me? Uh and just see if I seem different because I feel a little different. Not, not like, Oh God, I, this is, this stuff's bad. I don't want to take this just sort of, eh. but I also noticed uh, over the course of four or five days that there were a lot of things that normally would have been minor tasks where I encountered several obstacles and, under normal circumstances, I would not have followed through. The obstacles would have would have defeated me. Yeah, you know, I was doing something and I had to reset my password, and then I had to do two-factor authentication, and then that meant that I had to reset another password, and then I had to reset this other password, but I had to do two-factor authentication, and I forgot the first password already, and pretty soon. In order to accomplish what should have been a simple task, I had to reset 14 different passwords mm. because now the bank didn't recognize the original one and I didn't remember what that password was, so I had to reset the password. But so I had frustrating. To. And honestly, at any other time, by the seventh password, I would have thrown it all down on the floor and been like, I don't know, doesn't matter, won't happen, I don't care. I'm done. And I would have gone and buried my head in the sand or done something else. And in this case, I just kind of, you know, I wasn't like a, I wasn't like a, a passive cow. I was frustrated, but I just went back and did it and called the customer service and talked to that person and explained it again and and I punched my account number into their automated system, but then had to tell it to the live person that ended up answering the phone, even though I'd punched it in already. What is the purpose of even doing that? If the person asks you for it again, what are the last four numbers of your social security number, Dan? What, what password do you use that has a special character, a capital letter, two numbers, and is 12 characters long, but not more than 12? On and on and on. But I did it and I never got I never got full of rage. I never got full of sadness. I just did it. And over the course of the last two weeks of taking this stuff, I have found that there are lots of examples, lots of instances where I can say, you know, I was just sort of irritable that day. Mm. I didn't feel any one particular irritation it's just i kind of just felt meh 
slope. Not, and I wasn't even interacting with other people. So I was just a little snippy at the, at the plants. <laughs> but then there have been also multiple instances where I could have normally would have been irritated to the point that I throw the phone. Could, couldn't complete the task. Right. And yet I found that I just, just kept doing it, just kept plugging away. Like it was, things. it was irritating, but it was not a showstopper. You could continue. You were functional. You made it right. through and, and performed and did what needed to be done. Right. Right. So, so I, I talked to the psychiatrist and I said, I don't understand how I'm irritable, but not irritated. And, and what it feels like is a change in, in temper, like not even, a, not even as far as a change in temperament, but you know, like, like he has a mild temper, he has a medium temper, he has a good temper. Like I just, it's just a temper change. Um, and I don't, and it's the first time I've ever had to kind of wrestle with this question that you get with a lot of medications where it's like, is this, this isn't free. Like with Lamictal, all the benefits felt free. I didn't suffer from, um, lack of sleep. I didn't, uh, suffer from in incontinence or <laughs> lack, lack of <laughs> erection or, you know, well, like good, all, good. It was just all the benefits with none, with no downer. And this feels like, oh, it's all very subtle, right? You don't, I didn't sit down to a task and say, I'm going to complete this task and just work at it with like vim and vigor until it was done. Mm -hmm. I have continued to walk around the house and every time I see a guitar, I pick it up and play it for three minutes, regardless of what I was on my way to go do. If you're like, there's something on the stove, it's on fire. And on my way to it, there was a guitar lying on the couch. I would stop and play it for, <laughs> for 45 <laughs> seconds before I made it to the stove. So I haven't, it hasn't taken my ADHD um, semi-diagnosis and, and flipped it on its head. But like, am I willing to be slightly more irritated in order to be slightly less or slightly more irritable in order to be slightly less irritated? I don't know. I don't know. I, it hasn't been long enough. And I'm worried that if you, if you keep doing it like a month from now, will I even remember what it was like to not be slightly more irritated? I, I, right now it, it definitely feels like a feeling, but listening to, listening to me describe it, I, I can't imagine that someone else would go, Oh, right. Of course. Cause it's not like there's a shadow or a film over my lenses or, um, you know, like an identifiable it's not paranoia, you know, it's nothing. It's just sort of like n nothing, mm -hmm. but a, but a slight irritation. But yesterday it, I was, I was irritated and then Miley Cyrus mm. 
um, got inside me with this, um, you know, all I wanted to do was break your walls and you wrecked me. Yeah. And I became morbidly sentimental. Do you, th- went, you think that that's part of the, like connected to the, the medicine? I don't know because oh. morbid sentimentality is a thing is it? that comes upon me often related to music. And you know, the only times I cry are related to music. Right. Like I don't well, cry. I mean, as, as a man, we know you would never cry. Well, and I, and I seldom, you know, I don't cry over my, um, my foibles. I would, you know, if I, if I, if I saw a, a dog get hit by a car, I wouldn't cry. I wouldn't cry if the election results didn't match my expectations. I, I wouldn't cry if something I loved got broken, but every once in a while a song will get passed or I'll actively seek out a song mm-hmm. and it will, uh, it will take me to this place where, where all of the sentimentality kind of focuses or, or not, not concentrates, but it, but it connects itself to love and to lost love and to, to missed, missed love, love that, that never landed, never rooted. Right. And what that, what that is in me, I spend a lot of time trying to understand because we throw the word romantic around a lot, mm-hmm. both, both as a description of a person and also like a, like as a noun. <laughs> um, but, but, but it's, you know, it's a, it's an adjective that we paper on to all kinds of things. And I wouldn't, you know, if you called me a romantic, I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't demure. No. But I'm not a typical romantic or I'm not, I'm not one that's, I'm not a simple romantic. And, and kind of like a, a, a house full of books, like what does romanticism do for me now? What does, what does sentimentality that's rooted in love or lost love, how does that help me now? Mm. When I was 25, when I was 35, those felt like, you know, knobby tires on a, on a four wheel drive truck. Like Mm. that was a tool, like you were saying about a, about an old apple. Right. Um, it was a tool that 
was going to help me was going to help my four wheel drive truck get through the the wilds of love and romance and relationships that when I was 35 were just as rugged or more rugged than the, you know, than those rugged paths of my early life. And the, and that romanticism was as much, uh, you know, they were as, it was as much an armor as it was a vulnerability. Sure. But now, and it was always a threat. It was always a risk because I could succumb to it and it, it would stop. The, the part that helped was, you know, was susceptible to the rust of the part that didn't. Uh-huh. It, like it, it was, you know, it was like a, it was like carbon steel. Sure. It's a sharper blade, but it's also, it, it falls apart, right? The rust gets on it if you look at it sideways. Uh-huh. But now it's, so, you know, so I'm sitting in a parking lot listening to this pop song and it's gotten, it's gotten past and so I'm, cr- you know, I'm crying. I'm sitting in my car and I'm crying. No, and I'm crying about, and I'm not. I haven't disassociated it from Miley Cyrus. Like, right. I looked at the music video for a second and I was like, nope. I got a nope out of your naked wrecking ball video. <laughs> but I'm still in. I'm still in it with your voice. And she did that song when she was a young woman. And she was able to find in her own experience the, you know, enough passion around those lyrics to sing it convincingly. Right. And so I'm not wallowing in my own despair. I'm not connecting the song to some one particular relationship of mine. I'm not thinking back to, you know, oh, if only. And and I'm and I'm doing the thing. Was it just more the feeling? Yeah, well, also, I suspected as I heard her sing it that she was doing, that she was finding a way into the lyrics the same way that I often do, which is that I was singing from the perspective of the person that I had injured. So if I were to do a cover of Wrecking Ball and, you know, and, or if I had written Wrecking Ball. Yeah. I would have at some point along the way um, initially written the lyrics so that it said, um, you know, all you wanted to do was break my walls and all I ever did was wreck you. Right. And then I would have changed it. I would have switched it around as part of the songwriting process and said, all I ever wanted was to break your walls and all you ever did was wreck me. Hmm. And as I listened to her sing it, I thought that it was possible or maybe probable that she was the, that all anybody ever wanted to do was break her walls and all she ever did was wreck them Mm -hmm. because it just, there was something in it's, and it's no less a tragedy when I sing 
songs that way, I'm in some ways I'm more hurt or I'm singing about hurt in a way that, that, um, that singing about it in first person, but both that singing, if I, if the lyrics were all you ever wanted to do was break my walls and all I ever did was wreck you, it sounds bad. It sounds, uh, it sounds like braggadocio, Mm -hmm. like I'm, I'm a tough guy and I hurt your feelings. And because in every relationship, there's the lover and there's the loved and the loved is a less sympathetic person in romance in our, in our hearts. The lover is the one that we, that we feel sorry for, or the lover is the one that we, because the lover has the better end of the deal. You know, they get to feel something that the loved doesn't. But I think we make a, I think we make a huge error and I think it's something fundamental to the way that we make art and the way that we talk about one another, that we have so little sympathy for the loved because it feels like the loved. You can't, so that you can't have both people be lovers and also be loved. Can you? I, I, I don't know. Maybe you can. If you, I have no idea. If you like met your, significant other in high school and you're the only lovers that you ever had maybe. But I think that in every relationship there's, there is an imbalance and, and maybe the best relationships are the ones where either the imbalance is so small that it, that it's imperceptible or so great that there's no pretending it's not there. And all the other relationships in between the lover tries to not give away the whole story to keep a little bit of dignity and the loved pretends to some degree to be more of a lover than they really feel. But both of those are tragedies. You know, there's, there's no, the, the lover feels more tragic to us because they want what they can't have. But the loved also somehow wants what they can't have or also wants something that they don't have. And I always have felt in situations where I am the lover, mm. the, the pain is too great. And I always, I die a thousand deaths when I am the lover. And so I avoid it. I avoid it. I avoid being the lover. Um, when I feel it in me, I run and I destroy, you know, and I will, and I burn everything down on my way out. I'm much more comfortable in the tragic cowardice of being the loved, but it's no less a life of pain. Mm. And so listening to her sing, all I wanted was to break your walls and all you ever did was wreck me Mm. and not believing her, but really believing her that she had found something in it. And honestly, not believing the songwriters. 
I think that the song, and by, by not believing, I just mean that I understand that you can't sell a song. And by sell, I mean perform a song convincingly find an audience right right? not sell for money but like you can't stand up there and sing a song as a cad but i don't believe that those songwriters failed to know that they were that they had switched the pronouns and because i think only the only the loved can write the song. The lover can't. If the if if a lover wrote that song, it would be pathetic. Like you would hear it in the lyrics. It would be sappy and it would be gross. It would be clingy. There's a certain amount of pride and distance in the act of writing a song mm. where you say, you know, I... I wanted you and you didn't want me. Mm-hmm. And you're drawing on that feeling. You dr- you can draw from either side, loved or lover, in order to convey that feeling. You just have to know where that line between pathetic and cruel is. And so me sitting in that parking lot crying I was crying about that line. It wasn't connected to any person in my life. Although as I sat there, I, you know, I kind of mentally reached out to several people just kind of trying to find a way that I was having this feeling about them or about that time, but it wasn't, it was, it was, it was in that place that I felt Miley Cyrus was. And now that I, and I realized that these songwriters were, it's one of the things about the music of pink that resonates. Cause you feel that pink also is, you know, was on that line or, or lived on either side of that line in a way that Britney Spears didn't, or, you know, there are a lot of people that find it, that find their place there but I always felt like pink was there. And, and you know, the obvious ones, right? Um, the obvious ones like Johnny Cash, but you know, Tom Petty was never, it's funny because his music is so, it feels so profound. It feels so deep and connected, but Tom Petty could never sing a song like Wrecking Ball. There's no, there's nothing in his music really that, um, that conveys anything other than that he is the loved and was always the loved. Mm. Tom Petty was never the lover, and all of his sorrow, and I think a lot of the sorrow of, of, you know, a lot of kind of muscular rock and roll, it's a different kind of sorrow. It's like. It's like John Cougar Mellencamp. Like he's singing about loss, but all of the loss is like we lost our small towns and we lost our manufacturing jobs. It's such a different loss than. Is it? Is are you saying that it's somehow more um, masculine? Is not the right word, but it's a loss that I think 
is it may be easier for that sort of typical male to associate with in a way do you think i d- step outside of yourself as a deep feeling person for a moment i don't i i think that most people who are the objects of love feel insecure about it or feel unworthy or, or, and if they do feel worthy of it, then they're not writing love songs. You know, they're, they're writing something else. They're writing sex songs. Right. But I think most, most people make the mistake of seeing in loved and lover, uh, like a like a stereotypical gender divide, right? That the that the loved are men and the lovers are women, and so because to be the lover is to be weaker than to be the loved. But of course, that's never ever ever true. Um, and I and I think. You know, my problem with it or my not problem, but my response to it is that um, that that feeling that being the lover is weaker does comport with my own firsthand experience of like losing control. And in those moments, feeling more desperate than at any other time over any other thing. And that feeling desperate is so dangerous. It's so, it's so connected to the most animal things in us or in me. And in, in that way, like those desperate, that desperation you know, that feeling of weakness, it's the response to that that's dangerous because you feel weak and you want to prove that you're strong. You know, you, uh, you, you feel so weak that you are so desperate to regain control. That's where you see so much violence, I think, in the world mm-hmm. and so much rage and so much impulsive and, and, um, just the kind of the, the most awful things come out of unrequited love or, or, or rejection, but being the, being like an aloof loved or a kind of detached, only allowing yourself to be loved is just a state of constant brokenheartedness. It's never strong. It's never, there's no power in it. It's a kind of, it's a passive weakness where, you know, it's a, it's an, it's an, an abdication or a, um, an absence 
that has no muscularity to it. You know, it's a it's a way of living where you just watch. You know, you just it's like watching a film strip where the the color is faded. Right. And it's your life. 